Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Howdy, everybody. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I'm Jefferson Smith, sitting in, honored to do so. On the line, we have Tim Wise. Tim Wise first got to my attention through one of the best explanations of connecting the current political dynamic to the racist origins and present of our country that I've ever seen. And help set a tone for white allies as well as anyone I have seen. It's someone I've learned from and try to learn from more. I've never had a chance to talk to him before. Honored to have a chance to talk to him now. He had a thread that a bunch of people paid attention to, and I had multiple people ask me, did you see it? Did you see it? And I said, yeah, I saw it. And really glad to have the chance to ask him about that, where he essentially took lessons from running against David Duke or helping the campaign to defeat David Duke and thinking about how those lessons can be, might be, should be uh, translated to the campaign against Donald Trump. Online right now, we have Tim Wise. Good to talk to you, sir. Good to talk to you. Thanks. Give us the background on the David Duke campaign, and then let's talk about what you learned from it. Sure. So, you know, a lot of people don't really remember this, but it's been almost 30 years. David Duke, former leader of the largest Ku Klux Klan group in the U.S., really a a white supremacist and modern Nazi for all of his adult life, was running for the United States Senate in Louisiana in 1990 and then governor in 91. He had already been elected to the Louisiana State House in an election in 1989. And there were several of us uh, at the time. Uh, There was an organization formed specifically for the purpose of defeating him, a PAC that was not going to work with any existing candidate, but the whole purpose of which was really to defeat Duke in that Senate race at first, and then later the governor's race. And I was hired as the campus coordinator, later became associate director of that group. And at the time, you know, what Duke was doing was taking sort of the dog whistle racism that had really been quite common in American politics, at least since Wallace and Nixon, if not quite a bit earlier than that, And beginning to really bullhorn that racism, not playing nearly as many games, still trying to cover up his intent, but doing so in a way that was only, you know, pretty transparent. Not just saying saying states' rights. Yeah, no, 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 no. It was much more blatant. He was, you know, he was saying people's taxes are too high because we're spending all this money on those people for welfare. Or the reason you don't have a job is because a black person took it because of affirmative action or an immigrant took it. The reason you're afraid to go out at night is because of black criminals. I mean, he was much more blatant. And he was using this politics of prejudice and racial scapegoating 
to lure white voters in Louisiana to him. And it worked in a lot of ways. I mean, he got in that U.S. Senate race uh, 44 percent of the vote overall, 60 percent of the white vote. In the governor's race the next year, he got 39 percent of the total, 55 percent of the white vote. So in both elections, the majority of white people ratified a guy who they knew was a Nazi. It wasn't a mystery. It's not that they didn't know. They knew and they did not care. And as I've looked at Trump, I realize, obviously, Donald Trump is not the same as David Duke. I realize there are very serious distinctions. David Duke is actually a national socialist, and I don't believe Donald Trump is. But they are both tapping into the same vein of white racial resentment and using a politics of prejudice and racial scapegoating to catapult themselves to power. In the case of Donald Trump, I don't think that we have applied some of those lessons that a few of us, at least in Louisiana, learned in 90 and 91 in figuring out how to respond to him. And I was worried when I posted the 34 tweet Twitter thread a week ago that the current sort of Democratic Party approach and the candidates approach is to treat this almost like any other campaign. Here are our wonderful policy ideas. Here's what we're going to do on health care. Here's what we're going to do to make college affordable. And the problem is we're talking about Trump and Trumpism. Trumpism is not a movement that came to power on the basis of ideas and logic and people sitting down and looking at position papers and going, oh, I think I like this better than this. Fascism is not a fact-based movement. It is an emotion-driven movement. And to bring spreadsheets to a gunfight, which is what I think the Democrats are doing, is not going to drive the base to the polls. And it is certainly not going to get those reasonable moderates, independents, and, and, and Republicans to vote against Trump. So I think that there's a real danger here that hasn't been learned from the Duke years. And the case, a portion of the case you made was every time we focus our critique on some other thing, it almost is like we make equivalent his, I don't, you didn't use this example, but his weave comb over hairstyle with his racism. If we just pile on a set of critiques, then it seems like, well, it's just all a synonym for we don't like this guy, rather than trying to focus the nation on the racism of the man and the racism of his movement. And we have to put the focus there and uh, and rather than distract ourselves with other stuff. Right. And everyone has said from the beginning, we don't want to normalize Trump. Well, what could be more normalizing than to think you're going to beat him with your health care plan? I mean, that's exactly the way you would run against Ted Cruz. It's the same way you would run against Jeb Bush. It's the same way you would run against any Republican. That's normalizing him. And with Duke, we learned this the hard way. You know, I was involved in both the Senate race and the governor's race working against him. And in the Senate race, I'll be perfectly honest, and I talked about this in the thread and Washington Post, and I've talked about it all week. There were consultants, mainstream Democratic Party consultants, uh, as well as conservatives within our own coalition who were very nervous about talking about Duke's politics of modern racism. They didn't mind, obviously, talking about the Klan and his Nazi connections, but they didn't want us to talk about his racial scapegoating, his modern politics, out of fear that that would provoke a backlash on the part of white voters who agreed with those politics. And so in the Senate race, they were telling us, look, you don't want to talk about that. What you should talk about is the fact that Duke paid his taxes late or, you know, the fact that Duke uh, skipped out of service in Vietnam, or the fact that Duke wrote a sex manual under a female pseudonym, which he actually did do, which is weird. I don't want to talk about that. But in any event, like they told us, you've got to talk about these other character things. And unfortunately, you know, they had a lot of clout. They had the polling that made it seem like that was a good strategy. And we tried it. And I think it muddled the debate, because if you're talking about this guy's a Nazi, oh, and by the way, he paid his taxes late. 
people hear that and go, wait, what? If he's a Nazi, why don't you just sort of stick on Nazi? It, it seems like you're throwing everything out there. Understood. And I think with Trump, we do the same thing. Oh, it's Russia. Oh, it's the fact that he's a grifter. Oh, it's the fact that he's got his hands in Saudi Arabia and all these places making money. Oh, and it's Jared and it's Ivanka. And it's, you know, and at some point people hear that and go, well, is this a moral thing or do you just not like the guy? And I think if you have someone whose entire politic is about scapegoating, racism, bigotry, xenophobia, uh, you know, religious bigotry, you have to stay on that. It is got a one moral minute. issue. Trumpism is an existential threat to the country. We've got we've got one minute. And my question is very long. And where I agree is in one of the pieces of your thread, you say we got to put the focus not just on David Duke or not just on Donald Trump, but the focus on us and how we need to, this is not who we are as a nation. This is not who we want to be. Our identity can't merely be our racial identity. It has to be our, our compassion identity, our loving identity, our identity to try to make the world a little bit better. Here is, here is my quibble. So most of it I just read nodding, but here is what I still wrestle with. Is that Donald Trump, and you already embedded it in your introductory remarks, that Donald Trump does not have the credential of being a former Grand Dragon of the KKK. And right. David Duke was not just Robert Byrd, who was a minor KKK member as a younger man. He's not just a Food Network person who said the N-word. He had this credential. There is a debate yeah. right now about whether or not Donald Trump is racist. I think it's a debate kind of like climate change is a debate. I think it's a debate kind of like smoking causes cancer was in the 1970s. But nonetheless, much of the argument is not assumed Donald Trump is racist. Most of the response right. is, no, he's not. And that, and I right. wonder if that changes strategic analysis. we got a few seconds. Last word for you. It doesn't change it because whether or not one believes Donald Trump is a racist, we ought to be able to look at how he's campaigning and what he is using as a tool. He is performing racism. He is performing racism. And that makes it clear. Tim Wise, appreciate you. People can follow you on Twitter. Really appreciate your work and your time on the show today. You bet. Thank you. We'll be back. This is the Tom Hartman Show. I'm Jefferson Smith. This is the Tom Hartman Program. This is the Tom Hartman Program, and we'll be back with your phone calls. I'm Jeff. Steve from Chicago, you win the Most Patient Listener Award. Go ahead. Thank you. Can you imagine the effects that having a guaranteed job at a living wage would make to the country? It would be enormous. And in fact, a Fox News host just came out and said, well, there should be no minimum wage in the country, and which I think belied much of the essential ideology of that movement and, and should be something we talk about more. But continue your point. Okay. Well, first of all, it would set the base for a minimum wage. So we wouldn't have to deal with that. Yep. No one's going to work for anybody if they can get a guaranteed government job at a living wage. It would eliminate the need for most welfare. It would eliminate most poverty. It would eliminate a whole lot of homelessness. And it would eliminate one of the main reasons for racism is that these guys aren't going to take my job. <laughs> Connecting it, 
in fact, to the topic we were just on connecting uh, economic justice to racial justice. There was so much attempt to cleave those things apart during the analysis of the 2016 election. I think it was in significant part because it was so uncomfortable for a pundit with a large white audience and a large Trump uh, voting audience to say uh, racism. I think it was hard to say that. It's hard to say oligarchy when you work for an oligarch. Uh, but that there was this, oh, well, there's the racist thing and there's the economics thing. I appreciate your connection of those two things. If we worked either way, either way, if you worked on strengthening the middle class, building the middle class, bringing up minimum wage, and that was your number one thing, you'd have an enormous impact on racial wealth gaps and on racism generally. On the other way, focused in, uh, on sort of the other side of that, I say united front. If you worked just on elevating the condition of people of color in our country, if you worked just on making sure that racial wealth gaps were addressed, you would do more to address wealth gaps generally than almost anything else you could do. And by the way, one of the things you end up doing is things like the minimum wage. This stuff is not separated. We're our, we are united in struggle. Our salvation is linked to the salvation of one another. If we work on fighting racism and work on fighting economic oppression, we can work on both things. And in fact, I would argue you can't work on only one of them at once. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Howdy, everybody. I'm Jefferson Smith. This is the Tom Hartman program. I want to play a little clip. Or rather, I want to ask Nate to play a little clip of something on Fox News last week. Nate, let's play that clip. So anyone who's making uh, less than $15 an hour full time, that bill would elevate their, their wages to $15 an hour. But that's fundamentally anti-American. How is that anti-American to give workers a wage? Because that's ultimately, because, I mean, if you look at that system, I mean, and you look at what is going on in America, you look at our capitalist system, the minimum wage should be zero. Well, I don't want to get into the minimum wage. The minimum wage according to that Fox News pundit, should be zero. Make no mistake, that was not a slip of the tongue. If you tease out the arguments that have motivated, that have militated the growth of the right-wing movement, not the growth of the Republican Party, but the growth of the right-wing movement that now owns and operates the Republican Party, to use Stella's term, the regressive movement, that in the era of sort of post Ayn Rand, in the era of the Koch brothers, in the era of the prosperity gospel, in the era of the post-millennialists versus the pre-millennialists, the folks who think that God will come after things are really, really bad, and therefore we don't have to use our Christian faith to try to make them better. We don't have to do things like fight for women's suffrage and fight for abolition of slavery and fight for public schools, and fight for a minimum wage. All we have to do is convert people to Christianity because eventually things will be so bad through climate change, nuclear war, that that is when Jesus will come. And then we'll be saved. That a necessary conclusion, or at least a natural conclusion, of the movement that has built the apparatus that right now controls the country includes the conclusion there should be no minimum wage. 
if you believe the market just figures everything out, uh, figures everything out, that there is no market failure, that the invisible hand is so perfect, not only it's an invisibility, but in its deftness, that everybody who's worth anything will make money according to their worth. And if you don't make a whole lot of money, it means you ain't worth much. Disregard the fact that almost everybody who got a job that makes a lot of money got a job because they knew somebody. Disregard the fact that how rich you already were or how rich your parents were is a huge predictor of how rich you're going to be. Disregard all the work to eviscerate the estate tax, the inheritance tax. Don't call it a death tax. Almighty God taxes everybody 100% at death. You can't take it with you. If you're going to call it something, call it a rich kid's tax. But if you're trying to be fair and accurate, call it an inheritance tax or an estate tax. Disregard that privilege is something that begets more privilege. The essential argument is if you don't have a lot of money, it's because you ain't worth much. And if that's the essential argument, and if you are worth something, you'll be worth a lot. You make a lot of money. And if that's the essential argument, you don't need a minimum wage. Minimum wage can be zero. Wealth disparities don't matter. Middle class, that doesn't really matter. It's connected to virtue. And oh, by the way, if you're worth a lot, you're going to go to heaven disregard the part in the Bible. And I am not saying I'm Mr. Good Christian. I'm not even sure I'm a good person. Okay. The only times I pray are when I'm crying, like it's not, but I can read. I understand the religious origins of the country. I can go to the text. You're listening to Tom Hartman. I've got an important message for all my listeners. Economists will tell you that rising gold prices are an indicator of a failing currency. Well, gold is already up over 10% just since January and up over 33% in the last three years. What is all this really telling us? Well, the last crash was just a warning. It's only been papered over with trillions of dollars in new debt and statistically the next crash is already overdue. This reality has pushed the demand for precious metals to price levels not seen in nearly six years. The time to buy gold is now before the crash and before the next price increase. The big questions everyone asks are, who can I trust and what types of gold do I buy? Call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold The proper gold and silver strategy will help secure all your major assets, including your entire wealth portfolio. Call ITM Trading at one own gold Ask them for their free gold protection guide and secure your wealth while you still can. That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. one own gold And the idea that worth is connected to financial worth is the essence of this movement, at least is the essence of the people who fund it. And it's not because they read the Bible. It's not because they read the New Testament. In fact, going back to our caller before, my comments before, you can only get there if you twist the Bible. You can only get there if you forget that it's harder for a rich man to make it into the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle. You can only get there if you forget Jesus turning the tables of the money changers. If you think that somehow money is connected to moral virtue, you have to forget critical parts of your Christianity rather than grapple with it. And it comes out 
the Fox News pundit was not, did not, you know, everybody, oh, wait, 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 she just said it, there should be no minimum wage. It was not a slip of the tongue. That's the argument. That's the Koch brothers' argument. I just had this trip to Wyoming, extended family members I didn't know. We agreed on things that there should be a minimum wage. Majority of Americans believe there should be a minimum wage. And that it probably should be more than like seven or eight bucks an hour. Americans agree on that. People who don't, you decide what to call them. Roger, you've been waiting from Sarasota. You got a few seconds here. Go ahead. I don't know how timely this is because I decided to call uh, quite some time ago. Yeah, you were very you were very patient. You wanted to give the meaning of conservative to you. We got one minute. Uh well, as uh, I think George Washington put it, which has become an axiom, that government which governs best governs least. That is the essence of conservatism. So when I hear people call conservative, want to persecute homosexuals and outlaw abortion because it's against the Bible. Conservatism adheres to the Constitution. It espouses uh, minimal federal government interference. And so to call people that we presently call conservative is really a bastardization of the word and the ideal. You're absolutely right and appreciate it. Although I'll offer this one quibble. I had to look it up. You ascribe that quote to George Washington. I've heard people ascribe it to Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln. Turns out it came from Thoreau's civil disobedience, that government is best, which governs least. And part of my other challenge is government right now, people who are in control, ain't just elected to stuff, the people who own things. And that needs to govern least. talking about welcome back everybody i'm jefferson smith let's jump it is the debate what do you think we can learn or what format ideas do you have matthew from minneapolis speak your piece you know i'd like to find out from moderate joe biden whether he's going to just let individual one go or whether they're going to hold this administration to account if he wins the election. Because I know Elizabeth Warren, and I know Bernie, and I believe even Kamala, will not just let all these crimes go unchallenged. But I'm afraid Biden will. I appreciate it, Matthew. Let's go straight to Deborah from Torrance, California. Hello, Deborah. Hi. Hi. How are you? You know what? I'm feeling pretty happy to be here. That's how I'm feeling. It, I get frustrated, Deborah. I'm going to pretend that you asked that question. I, I'm, I'm going to take your question as if you really meant it. How I'm feeling is I get real frustrated, I think, like a lot of us, and it feels so nice to have a chance to gather in community with folks who are trying to figure out how we make democracy work better. That's how I'm doing. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. I'm glad that you've posed these questions, and while you've been on the phone, I've been writing down my answers. Oh, great. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. The worst thing the candidates can do is attack each other. They should use this time to go after Trump and his policies and the impact on everyone in the country, elderly, workers, children, no matter what color their skin. They need to gang up on Trump's lies about rebuilding the infrastructure on Mexico, no taxpayers, building his walls, his desire to destroy the Affordable Care Act for everyone, his tax breaks and his lies about revealing his own taxes 
Each of them needs to remind the public that millions of people are being prevented from voting because of Republican voter suppression and that the Republicans in the state need to be voted out in the city, state, and national elections. Too many people have no idea that these elected officials make the laws we live with, laws that can turn citizens into criminals with the stroke of a pen, and the campaign finance laws need to be changed. Then they should go step by step into how Trump has failed the public and is trying to search out a war so he can gather the nation behind him. His failed cabinet appointments, his own crimes that he will have to be tried for if he is not reelected and becomes a private citizen. They finally, I think they need to tell the the public that each of them will work together no matter what to reunite the country because we as a country cannot stand if we continue this way. And thank goodness for you. We've got a caller in who wants to talk about Gabby, I believe. This is Brendan from Beach Haven, New Jersey. Go ahead, Brendan. Hey, Jefferson, how you doing? Doing all right. I've been following uh, Tulsi Gabbard's campaign since she initiated. I've actually been a follower of her before she even was a candidate, but I love her foreign policy. Yeah. I mean, she's the only person who really comes out and is like tremendously anti-war, that being said, I was also a big Bernie follower, so it's a tricky situation. But the reason I call about Tulsi is that because if you follow her campaign, she has been slowly building the requisites for meeting these. The know, thresholds in order to get in the debates, sure. Sure. Getting there. Yeah. Question I have for you, Brandon, and I want to be a little careful about calling for, well, who's your favorite candidate in the debate, folks? I want to answer a somewhat different question than that. But a question I am at, what do you hope to learn? What questions do you think are really important for us to pay particular attention to? Right. Last time, there was some understanding of differentiation on health care plans, who wanted to put a real focus on a public insurance system versus who didn't want a public insurance system at all versus who wanted a hybrid. Most of the candidates were in a hybrid Elizabeth Warren. Uh, was I think both Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders wanted to focus on public insurance. What are what are some things you said foreign policy? Any particular indicator, any threshold, uh, or, or any particular benchmark for foreign policy that you think we ought to be watching for? Is it just as simple as the military budget, or should we be more specific than that? No, I think foreign policy is huge, and I think we should be also watching what's going on in Colombia and Venezuela and the you know the war that. They're trying to rattle down there now, and, and I, I'm afraid of a war in Venezuela for absolutely no reason except for good poll numbers for a president going into an election, and, yeah. I, and I'm terrified of that. Thank you very much, Brent, for calling. We're going to go to John from Santa Fe, New Mexico. Go ahead, John. Yeah, hi. Uh, referring to the debate and the yeah. format for the debate, but I was thinking of uh, keeping time of the open mic of each individual and uh, even two at a time or three at a time as they talk over, over each other. And then after, say, an hour and a half, go ahead and total them up and give the ones who didn't get a chance to talk equal time at that way. Like speed chess. Everybody gets a little clock, and, yeah, they, yeah. and, they, and they, right, they have to tap right. it down. And as soon as they tap it down, their clock starts and stops. And then and then oh. you get I, I, I like I like the idea. We'll take, by the way, people have interesting ideas for debates, either to learn more or to spice it up. So far, one idea from John in Santa Fe is the, is the speed chess clock. Uh, John, thank you so much for the call. You bet. Tom. From Seattle, Washington. Go ahead. 
Yeah, thank you for taking my call today, Jeff. Well, main thing I'm focusing on is the oil refineries and other businesses that are in communities where disproportionate amount of folks of color and uh, other folks that are dealing with low-income issues are um, needing to really have a voice in this election. And I do believe that Jay Inslee is the man. I hope that he gets a lot more attention. Make your plug for James. I know I don't want just a stream of plugs, but I, I think I may have a, yeah. a, a response. Is it, is it the climate change stuff? I mean, you're in Seattle, so he's your governor. Is it? Uh, he is, is our it, governor here? Yeah. Is, is it? Oh, um, go ahead. The main, the main thing is that the gentleman is definitely a very studious man, and he's a very articulate person, and he cares. He's got a heart of gold, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. And Tom, I appreciate the call. I had a chance actually to meet Jay when I was a young organizer. He actually asked me to talk at a little gathering that he did at the Democratic National Convention in 2004, I think, and watched him since, have been impressed. The question I would ask in Washington, he's, he's in a tricky spot. He wants to prioritize climate change and addressing climate change with new policy, and yet is in some of the same box as many Democrats are in with respect to transportation policy and highway construction, including Big Bridge and mega highway expansions. And he's sort of in that tricky box, and I found that to be an interesting dynamic. A city councilor who ran when I was a youngster said, you know, there's lots of questions that you could ask. It could be thousands of questions. What I hope you'll learn from it is not just my answer to a particular question, but how I process problems. I'm Jeff. This is Tom's show. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Rights Stealth Plan for America really is a deep history. It's brilliant. Uh, this is from the introduction. As 1956 drew to a close, Colgate Whitehead Darden Jr., the president of the University of Virginia, feared for the future of his beloved state. The previous year, the U.S. Supreme Court had issued its second Brown versus Board of Education ruling, calling for the dismantling of segregation in public schools with, quote, all deliberate speed. In Virginia, outraged school, uh, state officials responded with legislation to force the closure of any school that planned to comply. Some extremists called for ending public education entirely. Darden, who earlier in his career had been the governor, could barely stand to contemplate the damage such a rash move would inflict. Even the name of this plan, Massive Resistance, made his gentlemanly Virginia sound like Mississippi. On his desk was a proposal written by a man who had recently been appointed chair of the economics department at the University of Virginia. 37-year-old James McGill Buchanan likes to call himself a Tennessee country boy, but Darden knew better. No less a figure than Milton Friedman had extolled Buchanan's potential. As Darden reviewed the document, he might have wondered if the newly hired economist had read his mind. For without mentioning the crisis at hand, Buchanan's proposal put in writing what Darden was thinking. Virginia needed to find a better way to deal with the incursion on states' rights represented by Brown versus Board of Education. To most Americans living in the North, Brown was a ruling to end segregated schools, nothing more, nothing less, and Virginia's response was about race. But to men like Darden and Buchanan, two well-educated sons of the South who were dedicated to the idea of, uh, to its model of political economy, Brown voted a sea change on much more. At a minimum, federal courts could no longer be counted on to defer reflexively to states' rights arguments. More concerning was the likelihood that the high court would be more willing to intervene when presented with compelling evidence that a state action was in violation of the 14th Amendment's guarantee of equal protection under the law. States' rights, in effect, were yielding in preeminence to individual rights. It was not difficult for either Darden or Buchanan to imagine how a court might now rule 
presented with the evidence of the state of Virginia's archaic labor relations, its measures to suppress voting, or its efforts to buttress the power of reactionary rural whites by underrepresenting the moderate voters of the cities and suburbs of Northern Virginia. Federal meddling could rise to levels once unimaginable. James McGill Buchanan was not a member of the Virginia elite, nor is there any explicit evidence to suggest that for a white Southerner of his day, he was uniquely racist or insensitive to the concept of equal treatment. And yet somehow, all he saw in the Brown decision was coercion. And not just in the abstract, but the court ruling represented to him was personal. Northern liberals, the very people who looked down on Southern whites like him, he was sure, were now going to tell his people how to run their society. And to add insult to injury, he and people like him with property were now, no doubt, going to be taxed more to pay for all the improvements that were now deemed necessary and proper for the state to make. What about his rights? Where did the federal government get the authority to engineer society to its liking and then send him the bill? Who represented their interests in all this? I can fight this, he concluded. I want to fight this. Find the resources, he proposed to Darden. For me to create a new center on the campus of the University of Virginia, and I will use this center to create a new school of political economy and social philosophy. It would be an academic center, rigorously so, but one with a quiet political agenda to defeat the perverted form of liberalism that sought to destroy their way of order, of life, a social order as he described it, to promote a social order as he described it, built on individual liberty, a term with its own coded meaning but one that Darden surely understood. The center Buchanan promised would train a new line, a line of new thinkers in how to argue against those seeking to impose an increasing role of government in economic and social life. He could win this war, and he would do it with ideas. While it's hard for most of us today to imagine how Buchanan or Darden or any other reasonable, rational human being saw the racially segregated Virginia of the 1950s as a society built on the rights of the individual, in quotes, no matter how that term was defined, it is not hard to see why the Brown decision created a sense of grave risk among those who did believe that. Buchanan fully understood the scale of the challenge he was undertaking and promised no immediate results, but he made clear that he would devote himself passionately to this cause. Some may argue that while Darden fulfilled his part, he found the money to establish the center, he never got much in return. Buchanan's team had no discernible success in decreasing the federal government's pressure on the South all the way through the 60s and 70s. But take a longer view, follow the story forward to the second decade of the 21st century, and a different picture emerges, one that is both a testament to Buchanan's intellectual powers and at the same time the utterly chilling story of the ideological origins of the single most powerful and least understood threat to democracy today, the attempt by the billionaire-backed radical right to undo democratic governance. For what becomes clear as the story moves forward decade by decade is that a quest that began as a quiet attempt to prevent the state of Virginia from having to meet national democratic standards for fair treatment and equal protection under the law would, some 60 years later, become the veritable opposite of itself, a stealth bid to reverse engineer all of America. Democracy and change. Hey, people are always asking me, Tom, is the X chair really as comfortable as you say it is? And my answer is always yes. In fact, I probably don't do an adequate job describing just how great this chair feels. So take my advice. Get one to feel it for yourself. Thanks to X chair's 30-day, no questions asked, guarantee of complete satisfaction, you have no risk. 
So if you're wondering if what I say is true, try it for yourself. Once you feel the X-Chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar support, or DVL, you'll understand exactly why I love my X-Chair so much. Take advantage of X-Chair's new financing option and increase your productivity with the right model for you, the X-Basic, the X-1, through the X-4. X-Chair can fit your body and your budget. X-Chair is on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com now. That's xchairtom.com or call 1-844-4X-Chair. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code XWHEELS and you'll receive a free set of the new X-Wheels with your chair. xchairtom.com. Andy from Vancouver, also talking about the debates. Go ahead, Andy. You asked earlier, you know, what kind of things do we need to see and how are they going to win? I think there's a couple points that Democrats need to start thinking about. I'm uh, extremely progressive-minded, but a lot of independents who are going to swing the election one way or another, and a lot of Republicans in general that I speak to because I constantly try to engage people, they don't have a clue what's going on. Yeah. And we need to start explaining to them like they're children because I know people find that to be rude sometimes, but I have plenty of people that I've talked to, and when I break it down with math, they seem to catch on. There are a couple things that are going on there. Is it the independent? When you say independent, is it lower information voters that you're thinking most about? Is it folks who aren't sure that voted for Obama but then voted for Donald Trump? Is it people new to the process? When you're thinking about, the, is it specifically folks in Ohio, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, uh, and Michigan yeah, that you're thinking people, about? It's the people that can vote one way, one election, and then can be easily turned to vote another way. And the thing is, is that Trump is a propagandist, and he's I've been watching, uh, you know, and this is neither here nor there, but i was been watching professional wrestling since I was a kid in the 80s. Likewise. And he's just as bad as Vince McMahon. And recognizes that racial tropes, that if you can have the iron shake, and if you can have, they pronounced it chic, but I believe it should be pronounced shake, and you, and you have junkyard dog, but then you bring in Sergeant Slaughter to whip them all, then everybody can chant USA, USA, up until, you know, Hulk Hogan beats them all. Absolutely. I have student loans. Plenty of people do. But to explain it to people realistically, instead of going out and saying, we're just going to forgive what was it, Elizabeth Warren said she wanted to forgive $640 billion. How about, because all that's going to do is infuriate the opposite side that thinks you have to pay your own way. I do think this is one of the big things we've got to struggle with. And during the break, I had a call from AJ who offered articulate and honestly felt views on that, well, the, the progressives or the majority of the Democratic Party make sure that uh, candidates ought to make sure to speak to them. And uh, also, AJ had concerns about how early the campaign had started and was concerned that was a distraction from what was happening in the White House and that the House was on fire. We had to attend to that before spending all of our time thinking about who the next nominee to be the next president ought to be. And I think this is a tension, right? And I'll, I'll cite whether, well, our candidates going to look for the applause and the tweets and, and primary support. Those things are a little bit different. Uh, if they do that, is it going to make them harder to, is it making it harder for them? Are they going to lock themselves into positions that are less popular in some states like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Ohio? And 
I think that will be one of the topics we want to cover today. But I also think that very often the answer can be not just left or right, but forward. It can be learning from just something Jesse Jackson said when I was a little boy, which is, you know, need both our left and our right wing to fly. And he was speaking about the Democratic primary. Beverly, you are on from Austin, Texas. Speak your piece. Okay. Thank you for taking my call. How does what Trump wants America to be differ from apartheid? I find myself wanting to answer your question in two ways. It's basically to compare and contrast. How it's similar is he is creating an ideology, is creating and wants to create a regulatory structure that does benefit folks or punish folks based more on race. Where it's different is that, and I want to be careful not to overstate, I have not yet seen any proposal that says, if you are a blank color, you don't get blank. So far, it's only been, if you're a Muslim from another country, then you don't get to come here. If you are coming from south of the border, you're not allowed to come here unless you can dig under a wall. And, I, and so I would say, that's my very quick compare and contrast, but thanks for calling. AJ, I think you're listening on the app from Gainesville. How you doing? No, I was. Is that is that Gainesville, Florida? Gainesville, Virginia? Where Gainesville are you in? It's Virginia. All right. Well, AJ, thanks for calling. Go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to introduce a perspective, and I don't know if anyone else has ever mentioned this, but there has to be someone else that agrees with me, and that's that I'm very disappointed in the way they ratcheted up this entire Democratic primary that should have started in the fall, rolling everything out in the spring. When and when we you say when you say in, the fall, excuse me, Ajit, when you say in the fall, you mean we should be we should have waited two months, or it should have happened oh, yeah. even five months earlier. Exactly. Anyone anyone who consistently follows presidential politics knows that these type of campaigns start after Labor Day. Yeah. Okay, in the run up to an election year, and that's what should have happened here. These people came forward in the spring, and you know. Why? What was the purpose of it? That's number one. And then number two, I see it as a huge distraction. Our country is in a crisis right now. We have a very destructive person in the White House, but the Democrats somehow thought it was a good idea for people to decide, well, I want to be president. I want to be president. And that should be the most important thing. So I'm very, very disappointed in them because Rome is burning. Bottom line. But they're very focused on, I want to be president. And to strengthen your argument, you know, for instance, the impeachment question is now more seen through the lens of a presidential reelection campaign as distinct, which makes it even harder to address it just through a lens of where there are high crimes and misdemeanors and what should be the accountability for that. What's your best hunch if you have one? I don't think the candidates decided when the debates were going to start, for instance. What's your best hunch of why the debate started early? Or are there other things that happened earlier than you think they should have? Well, honestly, I think this was a Democratic strategy. I think this was highly supported by Nancy. And it was a way to let's roll this out. Let's distract our base and get them focused on, oh, 2020 will be here soon enough. Choose a candidate to get the pressure off of her Hmm. to proceed with impeachment. So I believe it was just a grand strategy. And, of course, the networks are going to fall in line. The cable networks are going to fall in line because it's ratings, 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 and it fills their time. You know, they've got to push their shows out 24-7. So it was just a massive plan, a massive distraction, and here we are. And then all these months, and now we're going into the fall, And things that we should have started months ago 
along the lines of impeachment were dragged out. Now we're going to go into court to try to get documents. It's going to be appealed. We're not going to get what we want right away when it comes to 60 and the underlying evidence because it's all going to be appealed and then ultimately it's going to go to SCOTUS. So the bottom line is that I wish that the Democrats would be more concerned about their base, which is the majority, as opposed to the opposing base. And I wish they would give us some credit for being singers and intelligent through it. There's our music, AJ. Thank you very much for calling in for the Tom Hartman Show. What I will say... We could have a different set of laws like they have in some European countries, which say the campaign for the executive doesn't get to start until blank months prior. I would actually support such a law for what it's worth. I don't think I have a somewhat different perspective than than you, AJ, that I don't know that all of it was decided by the Democratic Party to start early. I think it's a collective action problem. Deborah had a comment. She had a litany of things that she hoped that Democratic candidates would embrace. But she said something at the very beginning which was, well, they shouldn't spend their time attacking one another. They should focus their energy on Donald Trump. And one could quibble, well, should they focus their time on Donald Trump? Or as Pete Buttigieg has argued, well, we spend so much time talking about Trump. He hasn't been talking. Candidates don't talk enough, spend enough time talking about us. But that one piece, don't spend too much time attacking each other. Here was a dynamic I noticed. And that is, I think that the significant majority of people watching the debates tonight will agree with that. will say, I don't want them to attack one another. But there is a bit of a collective action problem, a little bit like the collective action problem that I think causes campaigns to start so early. If there isn't a rule in place that says you can't start campaigns until after Labor Day or you can't start until Halloween, well, there's an advantage to start early. If somebody starts in May, well, maybe I'll start in April. Because I can run out and get some endorsements, run out and lay out my policy positions before somebody else does. And then they look like copycats. Run out and make some relationships, get some commitments from big donors that there might be other U.S. senators who know also. But if I asked first, maybe I can get them. That's why it's called a race, or at least why the term race is not entirely inapt. And there's a collective action problem. If somebody starts early, well, somebody else starts early and eventually everybody's starting early. Similarly, I think there's a collective action problem about negativity in primaries. I think the significant majority, not everybody, some people like a fight and acknowledge they like a fight and will say, I want to see a fight. I want to see how these candidates are differentiated. I want to see how they can stand up to somebody who pokes at them because Donald Trump is going to poke at them. But I think most people probably, that's my guess, but most people I think agree with Deborah. They don't want Democratic candidates spending their time weakening or whacking other Democratic candidates. But what we saw, a dynamic we saw in the last debate, was two candidates had their biggest moments that saw them significantly rise up in number of people who gave to them, who clicked on their websites, and in their poll numbers, had their biggest jumps precisely after attacks. When Julian Castro uh, went after Beto O'Rourke and said, I'm sorry, Beto, I think it was a mistake going after him about decriminalizing the border. That was a big moment for Julian Castro. And I saw huge growth in mentions of him as a possible vice presidential candidate and significant growth in people who were supporting even his presidential candidate, candidacy. And then the even more notable one probably was Kamala Harris who went after Joe Biden on his position on busing, 
which turns out, as it turned out, not to be particularly different from Kamala Harris's uh, view on busing that should be left to local communities, left to the states, as distinct from imposed by the federal government. And that moment, nonetheless, where she went after Joe Biden, she was lauded as a hero and gave her a significant boost. All of a sudden moved her into the top four and got her pretty, you know, into the teens. So I think there's also this collective action problem that all of us would like to see a campaign. Well, all of us, lots of us would like to see a campaign that doesn't beat up on Democrats back and forth. But there can be advantage to the Democrat who does. So that's one dynamic. You're listening to Tom Hartman. So even if you have air conditioning in your house, hot summer nights can be kind of tough to sleep. I mean, we've got, we're smashing heat waves from Silicon Valley to Brooklyn. And, uh, you know, it can be tough to sleep during a heat wave. It, it, it alters everything, not just the temperature, humidity and everything. But get this, there's actually a bed that keeps you cool through the whole night, no matter how hot it is outside. It's called the Pod. It's from a company called 8Sleep, E-I-G-H-T Sleep. And it's the first and only bed with responsive surface technology designed to keep you cool all night long. The Pod is the Tesla of beds. It, the Pod dynamically adjusts each side of the bed to the ideal temperature for your body and for your partners, which science shows can help you sleep deeper, leading to optimal mind and body performance. You'll find that 8Sleep is a company dedicated to building the most innovative solutions for sleep's biggest problems, and with the pod, they are delivering. You'll never have to suffer through sweaty hot nights ever again. If you're ready to beat the sweat and start optimizing your sleep, head to 8sleep.com Tom. Try the pod for 100 nights, and if you don't love it, they'll refund your purchase and arrange a free pickup. They've already sold out the first two batches. They're going fast. For a limited time, get $150 off your purchase when you go to 8sleep.com slash Tom. That's E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash T-H-O-M. 8sleep.com slash Tom. Karen who's watching us online from Los Angeles, California. I think that's how you pronounce it, Los Angeles. Go ahead, Karen. <laughs> yes, so I've been told. Dovetail on something you're saying. I think confronting them on issues between each other is different than personal attacks, sure. which is what we saw nothing but in t- 2016. But my big issue with all of this is that the DNC and the DCCC, the way they've set this up, it's, it's more like a pageant than really a debate. There's not enough time yeah. to actually adequately really talk about issues yeah. and talk about ideas. And until we have publicly financed campaigns, the idea that they've set these arbitrary goals of how much money you have to raise, the idea of anything that's being publicly financed can't come up. It's not going to come up. And until we actually have publicly financed campaigns, we'll always have the influence of people like the Koch brothers and take it back. First of all, Karen, amen to your virtue and your intelligence. Everybody who knows you should love you, and everybody who doesn't know you should try to meet you to be able to bask in your intelligence and virtue. (laughs) Well, thank you. And the frustrating. I mean, I've lived off and on in the UK for the better part of 30 years, always maintaining my U.S. citizenship. But, and granted, they're a, they're a bit smaller country, but they only have like a six week election cycle, and it is publicly financed. Right. No, and then, and then all of a sudden. And I'm sorry, cha- the average Brit is a lot smarter than we are, and I, that's shameful. 
it doesn't cure all ills, but I do think it's a big deal. I think it it's linked to if you watch oh the old the old healthcare documentary by Michael Moore. My favorite line in it, a former British MP, Labour MP, who said, "Well, it all began with democracy." Talking about the run up to the National Health Service, that having a functioning democracy is a precursor to effective pro-human being policy is critical. Really appreciate it on the formats, and thank you so much for calling in. The time is we had the previous caller who thought the way to deal with that was do it speed chess. Uh, you know, everybody has that's my term, not his, but uh, where everybody has to keep track of their time. And at the end, if they have extra time, they can use it. Time is one of the, maybe the resource that we're arguing about here, how to use that time. One way to use that time. This is where I do agree with Jay Inslee and not just on climate. But I think if there were issue focused, topic focused debates where they actually went deep on the thing. It would make it less likely that they would just be looking for their one gotcha line, their chance to get in a zinger that got repeated in some headline or some tweet afterwards. But in fact, really helped educate the electorate about that topic area and put more focus on the differentiation, not only among the candidates on the dais, but also between the Republican candidate for president or likely to be the Republican candidate for president, the current president of the United States. That would be one of the format suggestions I would have. I think that could have been edifying. The other one is I'd like to see them have a little bit longer times on those topics because then we could see, you know, most times presidents have more than a minute to talk at you. They get a little more time. Anyway, this is Tom's show. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Howdy, everybody. How's everybody doing? It's good to have you. We are talking right now about a topic that I like to keep coming back to, which is a state of democracy and how can we work on that basic foundation? Interesting New Republic article. We're going to be talking to the author tomorrow, uh, making the case that the right wing movement funded significantly by the Koch brothers. I don't say that to be like a boogeyman just to or to cite a boogeyman, just to say, well, that's actually how it happened. They put unprecedented resources into political organizing, unlike anything that's ever been put in American history. And that helped build a decades long, not elections long, decades long uh, movement around a set of ideas, a set of talking points, a set of principles, a set of values, and a set of policy proposals that, you know, pretty good for the Koch brothers and, and their viewpoints. And, and, that, and the argument from the New Republic is that Democrats didn't have as long a view. They weren't playing 40 years ahead or decades ahead. They weren't looking at the systems of democracy, and therefore the systems of democracy have been eroded. Setting aside partisan preference, systems of democracy ought to be important to all of us, ought to be deeply important to all of us. So we'll continue to talk about the systems of democracy. We'll also talk about things that you can do in your town. We're going to be talking to an organizer. It actually happens to be an organizer in my home state, but doing something that I think can inspire other action to work on democracy. And we covered this with Tom actually on the air some weeks ago, uh, what was happening in Oregon and the uh, unfettered, unlimited campaign contributions in the state, which might surprise people a little bit. And 
it was hard, even though you had significant majorities of Oregonians in favor of some sort of limit, it was hard to get any through the legislature. Online with us right now is Jason Kafori, a spokesperson for Honest Elections Oregon, a state that has never had any limits or that was in a position of not having any limits on campaign contributions, period, such that one person donated three and a half million dollars to the Republican candidate. And Jason Kafori and his group, and, with some, and I will give some disclosure, I participated to some degree, but they are in the business and in the process of changing that. Jason, thanks for joining us. So what happened in Oregon, and why were you working at it? So as you were just pointing out to that last caller, since 1997, Oregon Supreme Court decision, where the Oregon Supreme Court concluded that contribution limits were directly in violation of our state free speech clause in the Constitution. Yeah. So since 97, we've lived in a regime where it's unlimited donations across the board for all races, and we're one of only five states in the country that has that system currently. As you were pointing out, that was Phil Knight's $3.5 million donation to the gubernatorial candidate for the Republican this last cycle. Governor Kate Brown said at the end of the election that campaign finance reform was one of her top priorities. Uh, Jason, how did you end up breaking the logjam and actually getting something done on this topic? And I say it in part on the chance that could inspire or give lessons to anyone else around the country who's thinking about engaging in democracy advocacy. The legislature hadn't done anything good on campaign finance reform here in Oregon since 1864. Uh, So, you know, we we had but we had this ripe moment where, you know, after Citizens United and and after this massive donation by Phil Knight, I think that the Democratic leadership realized they needed to do something on campaign finance reform. The governor said she was going to make it a priority. And so we, we, we drafted several bills, a couple on disclosures, one on contribution limits, and one on um, uh, an actual referral to the voters, SJR 18, that would explicitly state that the state constitution does not uh, prevent you from having limits on expenditures, contributions, and, and having uh, top donors disclosed. So there was a fight for months about whether you know, what the contribution limits bill would look like. No, it looked like, it looked like, it looked like not only was that bill going to die, but so was the constitutional referral was going to die. Yeah, so, so exactly. So, and then, uh, as, as people around the country may remember, the uh, Oregon Republican Party abandoned the state, literally left the state capitol over a uh, cap-and-trade uh, global climate bill that for a week and a half almost, I think it was almost two weeks, they left the capitol at, right at the end of the session. And I think the momentum behind watching the, the, the Republicans leave, not for, you know, moral issues, but for straight money-related issues to their big contributors, I think that turned uh, enough people in leadership in the Democrats to push that constitutional referral out. So, remarkably, literally in the last 48 hours, uh, we passed the referral out of uh, the Senate, and then we got it out of the House. And now it's going to be before uh, the so voters. Is, yeah, and, 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 the- now, and now November 2020, it's on the ballot. And and I thought it was so interesting because that was I mean, that was the thing I noticed. And in fact, the thing I talked to Tom about and the thing I talked to some other uh, members of the media about was that what I noticed was that when Republicans walked out and that was a national story, one of the reasons why we're coming back to it now. Tom had actually asked to do it right after right afterwards. I have at the time I was in Hawaii, but the uh, but it, it was a national story then. And what was remarkable to me and by that, I mean worthy of being remarked upon was they didn't walk out over same-sex marriage 
They didn't walk yeah. out over uh, something about the right to keep and bear arms uh, unfettered from regulation. Abortion. They didn't write, walk out over abortion. Uh, they walked out over. They walked out two times. The first time was over taxes for the wealthiest Oregonians, and the second time was uh, when the timber industry was pushing back on climate change legislation. They're pushing back on something that would, again would impact their very biggest donors, and. The and, and it was an example of where there was some people power had a chance to get something done and thought, you know, maybe to inspire a few people or at least give people an update from a story that was covered some some weeks ago. Yeah, the other big development uh, here, uh, Jefferson, is that, you know, we also simultaneously have passed limits uh, in the city of Portland and in Multnomah County. And those limits are now um, up to the Supreme Court. We have a completely different yeah. makeup of Supreme Court than we had in 1997. Uh, a lot of them, I think all of them uh, now have been appointed by a Democrat uh, governor. So it, it will be really interesting to see. And that hearing uh, on the initial brief is due. Um, uh, the briefs have been filed, the initial briefs have been filed, but that hearing before the Supreme Court is on November 1st. So, you know, we here in Oregon have a dual strategy. We're trying to win at the courts or uh, at the ballot uh, to get campaign finance reform. And, you know, we got um, uh, a whole bunch of people to file amicus briefs uh, in support, uh, including the ACLU, uh, who had long opposed uh, any sort of limits on uh, money in politics. Uh, and, in, in fact, in their brief, they, they, they wrote... Uh, They, quote, reconsidered its previous absolute opposition to any regulation of campaign finance and now recognizes, quote, the harms of an unregulated election system, including favoring the views of the rich to such an extent that the views of less affluent Oregonians are largely erased from the political sphere. I would actually pretty powerful stuff. I would like to actually talk to the ACLU about it. For years, there were rumors that uh, that there was coke money that had gone to the ACLU, that that one of the reasons for their libertarian take their sort of anti-government take on campaign finance reform might be connected to, well, they were, that was the source of conservative money they were still getting. And if you'd suggest that, some strong supporters of the ACLU would say, that's blasphemy. How dare you even suggest that any of those rumors, any of those written stories are accurate? But I, I would like to ask the ACLU about the change of mind, because I know that's been a big deal in the dynamic. But where can people find out more about what's happening about this? And might want to bring you back when we know more about what happens to glean some lessons that folks might be able to bring back to do something in their city. Because some of this discussion started when we put together, you know, town hall meetings about public financing in Portland and then limits in the county. And there's really been just a ton of work done in the last couple of years. But where can people find out more if they're curious? Honest-elections.org. Honest-elections.org. That's our website. Uh, That's sort of the mothership for all of the stuff we've been working on here in Oregon. Some great videos that we've produced uh, are up there, along with all the bills and all the organizations that we've gotten to, to be on board with us, local organizations. So if you have local organizations in your hometown that you see on those lists, you know, those should be uh, entities that you could approach to try to build a large, broad-based coalition around a campaign finance reform at your local level. Jace Kafoury, thank you so much for taking the time, and thanks for your work. Yeah, thank you, Jefferson, and uh, keep up the fight. All right, man. You're listening to Tom Hartman Show. I'm Jefferson Smith. If you have a local fight going on. If you've got a chance to do some pro-democracy thing in your community, let us know about it. For me, I want to evaluate for the big three that try to, I try to keep in my mind. How do we reestablish our system of governance? How do we rebuild the middle class? And how do we save the climate? Save democracy, save the middle class, save the climate. That's what I'll be watching for. And thanks, everybody. Whether you're a lightning, whether you're a lightning bug, 
I'm Jefferson Smith, and you are priceless. Definition of priceless, worth a lot, not for sale. Take care. been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.